In Spring Branch, we speak more than 145 different languages, and that diversity translates into a thriving economy. Our district's a melting pot. It's a great place to find the staff you need. Spring Branch is working for business. Yours. Find out more at spmda.org. Hi, and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. And I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. And Marissa, I told you I had a, a story I wanted to tell you about. I'm all ears. <laughs> yeah, I kept it kind of a mystery because I wanted to get your reaction. So back in July, I wrote a story about ducks. A retired couple was living in Bridgeland. This really nice master plan community out in Cypress, built by the same developer who did the woodlands. And they owned a home facing this sort of man-made river because they really loved feeding the ducks. But the HOA did not love them loving to feed the ducks. The ducks poop (laughs) and they tear up the gardens and they walk on the street when they're trying to get from the water to the couple's porch. So for years, the HOA is telling them to stop. And according to court documents, they often are like, sure, okay, but then they keep on doing it. And eventually, after years and years of this, things come to a head. The HOA sues, and the couple lists their home on the market, saying that if they lose, they'll need the proceeds from their home to cover everything the HOA is asking for in court. So I'm like, yeah, this is a crazy story. But then the couple's lawyer, Richard Weaver, emails me a statement saying the couple started feeding their ducks after the loss of their daughter. And when I talk to the mother, Kathleen Rowe, she tells me that she lost her daughter when her daughter was already an adult. And she also starts talking about how she wants to feed these ducks because they're ducks that were probably purchased as pets and then freed into the wild without ever learning the survival skills they would have learned from their mother. She had this quote, they've never had a mother. I feel like I'm just stepping in. So I write this story and it goes viral. I I think it's the most read thing I've ever written at the Houston Chronicle, which is crazy because it didn't take much time to write, you know. Um, But I think it touched on two powerful chords. One is that people have strong feelings about HOAs. HOAs are really powerful in Texas and they're a big thing in Houston where they're the closest thing to zoning. And the other thing is people have very strong feelings about wildlife. Like, does feeding animals create this special bond with nature, or is it actually detrimental to wild animals? Or is it just a nuisance? You know, people feel strongly. So the story gets picked up by the Washington Post, Huff Post, the Daily Mail in the UK, Business Insider India. People are posting about it on Facebook and Arabic. Texas Standard reaches out to be like, do you want to talk about the ducks? And um, that was all the beginning of July. And then at the end of November, so almost five months later, I get a tweet. It's since been deleted, but it said something along the lines of, can we talk about how this dead daughter is alive? Very much alive. Okay. What? (laughs) Did you check? (laughs) So I'm like... Uh, well, I mean, I get this feeling like, oh my gosh, that's something I would never have fact checked. 
right? Um, whether someone's daughter is dead or not. Oh, that's just like something you just don't lie about. But then again, people lie about weird things. Something like losing a daughter is not something that I've ever uh, seen someone like, you know, that was in their right state of mind um, be dishonest about. And and I don't know why they would be, but her daughter's death. I mean, why would that have anything to do with ducks? First of all, I didn't get, I don't get that. I think the implication is it's like a form of grieving. Anyway, I see this tweet. I'm like, here's my email. Please pass it along. And sure enough, the next day I check my email and I see a message from Alicia Rowe. And uh, here it is. It says, a friend of mine passed me your information from Twitter. My name is Alicia Rowe, and I'm hoping you can provide some help or clarity for me. You wrote an article about a Cypress, Texas couple, Kathy and George Rowe, that were feeding ducks and upsetting their HOA. It has been referenced many times across many articles that it was a coping mechanism for grieving the death of their only daughter. I am their only daughter, and I am very <laughs> oh much alive. God. I have not been in contact with my parents for some time, and that boundary has been clearly stated and understood. They are absolutely aware that I'm not dead. It's been pretty disturbing reading about my death across various publications. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, track I'm trying to track down the source of this misinformation and hopefully root it out. I'd love to chat with you about this and your experiences with this article. Hope to hear from you soon. Love, yours very much alive, Alicia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this point, I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I give her a call. And she explained that because she doesn't talk to oh her parents, God. she occasionally types their names into Google to see if there's anything she can glean about their lives on the Internet. Morbidly, the most likely thing would be an obituary. And that occasional ritual was how she found the article. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm going to play you a clip um, of what she says. Hi, Alicia. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say I was really surprised when you reached out. And um, I guess you were saying that this story, which first published in July, sort of came across your radar the Friday before Thanksgiving. Yes. And I was wondering if you could tell me how that came about. Um, yes. Um, my family and I are no contact. So I just kind of uh, scan headlines for our family name uh, occasionally to see what's going on um, and came across this news article uh, originally in Daily Mail UK. Um, sent it to a few friends who immediately pointed out to me that uh, this article was pretty much everywhere. What went through your mind? Um, it's a little surreal reading about your own death. I'm not going to lie. Um, mm. so my first initial reaction was kind of shock. And then my next reaction was very much wondering how I died and when. Yeah. So you're wondering like how this happened and how, how did you start figuring that out? Initially, I actually kind of posted a call to action on my own Facebook, uh, oh, just kind yeah. of being like, hey, everyone, apparently I'm dead. I'm not entirely sure what to do next. Um, and a few people suggested reaching out to the news outlets uh, individually to try to see if I could get some corrections. 
uh, while I was trying to figure out like where this came from to begin with, a friend of mine, I think, reached out to you on Twitter. You said it's like really weird to re- read about your death. Like, did it impact your state of mind at all? For sure. Um, again, it's it's a <laughs> it's a little disorienting. Um, it was one of those, is this real? Am I reading this incorrectly? Uh, let me go dissociate for a couple hours about this and uh, try to figure out what to do next. But yes, it definitely um, affected the next few days for me. And it sounds like like a particular kind of stress. Yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure what to label that stress as, um, but definitely stress. And I think uh, looking around at the other, other articles definitely compounded it because other authors would, I guess, put their own information or own wording on it. So some of them were describing my death as very sudden, um, oh. very tragic. Uh <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, various descriptors of, of how I died uh, was was a little bit distressing. Yeah. And I, I can imagine it being just distressing in itself because it's a little like Twilight Zone flash. Like it seems really hard to control. Um, were, were you worried that it would have any like concrete in, uh, impacts? Like, I don't know when clients are trying to reach out to you or things like that? For sure. That crossed my mind. Um, I was very thankful that my, my full name wasn't re- you know listed anywhere in these stories. So thankfully if clients uh, Google for me, uh, you know, before this interview, there's not going to be anything, but um, it did very much cross my mind that either clients uh, could think I was dead, um, old friends or acquaintances that I've lost contact with, uh, old coworkers that know who my my family is. Um, me, I was a little worried about them thinking that I was dead as well. Yeah. Um, and did you have any like hypotheses about what had happened? Um, with like how, the, how does the, incorrect information got out? Oh, I mean, yes, <laughs> several, maybe unsurprisingly, uh, due to the nurture of the article. Um, my mother is not great at uh following rules, um, including boundaries. Um, so. When we initially went no contact about six years ago or so, um, she basically started telling, you know, other local people that I had passed and she had taken down all the photos of me in the house and had planted a memorial garden to me in the backyard. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, I had this like series of letters basically saying, if you want people to not think you are dead... You need to come back and talk to us and tell everybody that you are not dead. Oh, wow. So. Yeah. So. This was like a negotiating tactic. I didn't want you, yeah. I didn't want you to think that this was on you. <laughs> um, 
she also has a history of speaking in kind of vague generalities um, when there's something that might uh, reflect either poorly or well on her. Okay. Uh, do you do you mind talking about what led up, or maybe what the precipitating incident was to the conversation where you were like, "We need to set boundaries." Oh gosh, um, just years and years of dysfunction. Uh, just just a lot of unhealthy patterns um, in our family that uh, did not seem like they were going to be broken anytime soon. So I had to make the decision to just consciously step away from all of it. When you say like boundaries being overstepped, I think that's the part that I'm like trying to understand. There was just there was a lot of both physical and emotional abuse in my home oh, growing up. I'm sorry. And um part of kind of some of the tactics used were to lie and manipulate information in order to get some kind of compliance from me or to have others uh maybe be a little bit more sympathetic towards my mother if I was presented as the problem child what what did you think was like the intent of saying that she had lost you Honestly, um, to gain sympathy or to have kind of a reason why she's not following the rules. Um, it's it's kind of hard to be mad at the, the lady with a dead daughter that just wants to feed the ducks, right? So, any reaction? I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> um, so... Because first when you told me that, I was like, maybe she, maybe the the mother, um, you know, suffered from some sort of mental health disorder, like dementia, Alzheimer's, or something that was impacting her state of mind uh, when she, like, talked to you and, and her attorneys and everything. Um, but then after hearing Alicia speak, it sounds like... Um, a really sad and and desperate plea to her daughter. Like, it's almost like, I mean, obviously she didn't want to get sued or anything, but it's like, it's like, this is like a, I don't know, in some ways, maybe she was hoping her daughter would see it and reach out to her and, and, you know, reignite that relationship or something. Um, Or maybe in her eyes, like, I guess she truly is dead. I mean, I've known people that have cut family members off for similar reasons that Alicia stated, which, you know, obviously we can't corroborate what her childhood was like or what their relationships were like. But uh, based on what she was describing, I have known people that have cut family members off or, you know, set up very, very intentional boundaries. Uh, And it is like a grieving process Mm -hmm. for both people involved my dad and my sister are also both in grief counseling. They, and so I've learned, they, we've talked a lot about grief throughout my life. And you can grieve pretty much anything, any big change in your mm-hmm. life. And especially the loss of uh, one of your closest personal relationships, like a daughter, mm-hmm. could be like a grieving process. It wouldn't surprise me if the mother did go through a, a form of grief. Yeah. 
that was akin to death that were, that made her want to mother something else and made her want to have some way to make herself feel better and feel needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I left this being like, oh, wow, how am I going to fix this? And um, and and the first thing I wanted to absolutely make sure was that, like, there were no mistakes in my correction, right? Um, so I'm like, okay, how, how can I make sure someone is someone's daughter? I've never tried doing this before. So I'm like, can you give me a photo of you with your parents, even though that's a weird thing to do? But I was just sort of like, it's a starting place. And then... Oh, a birth certificate. Yeah, I guess that would have worked too. Um, I didn't think of it. Uh, but what I did do is I turned around and I called uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rowe's lawyer since I had this um, statement from him saying that the Rose had lost their daughter. And uh, he picked up and he was like, oh, it's been a little bit. But he was like, oh, I, I do remember that being like the emotional aspect of the story. And um, yeah. he sounded as surprised as me that she was still alive. And I was like, okay, it's fine. I'll just call Mrs. Rowe. And he's like, no, I'll call Mrs. Rowe. So uh, (laughs) I wait for a while for him to do so. And then I'm just like, I'm going to call her myself, but it goes straight to voicemail. And a little bit later, the lawyer calls and he says, uh, quote, she wanted me to communicate her apologies. She reiterated her words to me. And it was that she had lost her daughter. When she told me she lost her daughter, I thought she'd passed away. That's the end of the quote. So I was just like, oh, wow. And I look at his quote and it, it did say lost. Uh, and I looked at like my conversation with her and it all it was like in the terms of losing. And I was just like, yeah, I guess both of our assumptions were obviously wrong. Um, but she didn't correct you. Okay. I, I see your point and that you both assumed, but she didn't correct you. I mean, the story ran... Yeah. I'm sure that her and her husband read the story. She could have reached out and been like, uh, technically, I said lost my daughter, but she's still alive. She could have reached out to you. And as she saw the article getting picked up, I'm sure her friends showed her, oh, look, it's in the Daily Mail. Oh, look, it's here. Like when all those articles were talking about this, quote, sudden, quote, death, like, I feel like she would have had opportunities to reach out to not only you, but to other journalists just to clarify. But it seemed like she chose not to. And I'll say for listeners that in newspapers, it's like generally you don't use euphemisms for death because there is this room for ambiguity. So when I wrote it, I heard lost. I'm like, oh, that's a euphemism for died. And actually, the Washington Post did the same thing. They they got the statement from the lawyer and they also was like lost meant died. But I took this um, call to at least be like confirmation that the daughter was in fact alive and that she knew that. So by the time Alicia did send me a photo of her and her dad, who like funnily enough had like a bird standing on his shoulder. By that point, I was already like, okay, how am I going to do this correction? I'm talking about it with my editors. And it was, um, I think maybe the weirdest correction I've written At the bottom of the story, it says the story has been corrected to reflect that Kathleen and George Rowe are estranged from their daughter, who's still alive. And we put on this correction. But at this point, you can see the number of people reading the story at any point. Five months ago, it was a ton, right? At this point, the only person on that page was me. Like the only person looking at the article was me. So I knew that the correction wouldn't be seen by even a fraction of the people who read the original story or any of the versions that followed by other outlets. 
So that's why I proposed this follow-up story. And Alicia agreed. What I really wanted to know is how do you unkill someone after they've been killed off in a story that's gone viral? So I spoke with Kelly McBride, a senior vice president at Pointer, a nonprofit that's an authority on media and media ethics. And she told me it's not unusual to have someone incorrectly reported as dead in a story. But what is unusual is that, and this is what you were saying, the story remained unchallenged mm-hmm. for so long before anyone pointed it out. Multiple outlets, mm-hmm. yeah. The story was up nearly five months before Alicia herself reached out. Normally, McBride said, when parents spot that type of misunderstanding, they would point it out right away. And she said the problem obviously got compounded by other newsrooms picking up the story because none of them had dug deep enough to uncover the truth of what loss meant either. Uh, And this is a quote. She said, uh, you got caught in the middle of family dysfunction and some media ecosystem dysfunction as well. End quote. Yeah. Mm. So when I asked Alicia if she'd be open to a follow-up story, she said she had multiple reasons she thought the story was important. Initially, it was just I wanted the truth to get out there uh, in whatever form that was. And then that kind of became the the larger truth of this is kind of a strange and unique situation, but not that unique if you start digging into it a little further. Uh, There are lots of people that have had weird situations with their family, very traumatic situations with their family. It just doesn't happen to make it onto uh, the news or into print. Yeah. Alicia's now a therapist, and she said she's found that situations like hers, where people have established a no-contact rule with a family member for mental health reasons, are not that unusual. And that's the other side of the story. Family estrangements are often treated like dirty secrets. And the fact that people don't talk about them can make them appear rare. But they are incredibly common, said Carl Pillimer, a professor of human development at Cornell University. Uh, He's been studying family estrangements for a decade and written a book on the subject named Fault Lines. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pillimer. Just wanted to start out by asking, how did you get interested in this topic? I uh, came to this issue in a sort of unusual way. In part, it was logical because I've spent a lot of my research career studying family problems. I was interviewing older people as they looked back over their lives from 80, 90, 100. And one question I asked was their regrets. So what did they regret? And what could a young person do to get to their age and avoid major regrets? I expected big ticket items like a shady business deal or an affair. I wasn't prepared for for how many people an unresolved estrangement was a source of great regret and pain in later life. And that was especially true for very old people who were estranged from a child. Mm. It's almost like they couldn't move on with this phase of their life with that lack of contact. One thing we do know is when you get older, you really want your family around you. Uh, Or but they were also regretful about estrangements with siblings, about an unresolved estrangement with their own parent. And that led me to thinking, how big is this issue? Mm-hmm. What are the causes and what are some of the consequences? Yeah. And um, so it sounds like you put together a study to see how frequent it is. And um, tell us a little bit about this, because like I said, I was I was pretty shocked. 
we did a large-scale survey of 1,350 people asking people if they were in an estrangement, and it was worded, uh, uh, you know, strongly. It was worded, you know, is there someone, a close relative from whom you are estranged? That is, you have no contact with them at all at the present time. So, you know, there wasn't much waiver room. Uh, we were very surprised to find that approximately 27% of Americans responded that they had an active estrangement now. Wow. And even if you narrowed that number to people who had an estrangement and said they were upset by it. So imagine maybe your brother moved to you know Australia and you aren't in touch much. If you just looked at individuals who said, I have an estrangement and it's it's at least somewhat upsetting. It went down to about 22%. So it didn't go down very much. So, you know, between a quarter and a fifth of the American population, if we extrapolate out, you know, approximately 70 million people identify themselves as having an active estrangement. Yeah. I was sort of telling my editor this and she was blown away. And, I, you know, she was like, oh, is it like extended family? And I think the numbers show that sometimes it is, but often like 10% of people reported it was from a parent or a child. 8% said they were shamed from a sibling and 9% of them were, were extended family. That's absolutely correct. But that's not really the only story. So often when a rift occurs in a family, people take sides. Uh, adult children will say to a sibling, why are you still in touch with mom or dad? I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're still in this unhealthy relationship. Mm. So there's a lot of ripple effects uh, and collateral damage. Yeah. I, I was like, I can think of a lot of examples from people I know, but um, it, it feels like a lot, a lot of people probably just don't talk about it, you know? Um, so that is, that's a very critical point. One of the things that we found is that people are very unwilling to discuss this issue. And in a world where people live their lives on social media and where almost anything seems to go, this is one area that for most people we interviewed was quite a taboo topic. It's why, as an aside, that what's happening right now in the royal family is so unusual. Oh, interesting, that, uh, yeah. But for most people, this is experienced as a shameful event it's one where people feel guilty. It's one where it is not at all unusual for parents to not describe it. I would say it's unusual for someone to say outright, my child is deceased. But it is not at all uncommon to be ambiguous about it. And I think they were ambiguous. They said, I lost my child, right? Yeah. No, and you're right. And for some people in estrangements, especially when they didn't initiate it, they will describe the estrangement as in some ways more difficult to deal with uh, than a death. You know, a death is final. It has rituals. For people in active estrangements, there's always the possibility that it might resolve. They continue to hold out hope. Many of them continue to try over the course of years or decades and are rebuffed each time. So um, there is this sense of it's, you know, the death of relationship. As one of our interviewees said it exactly, 
it's the death of a relationship, but with no funeral and no closure. Mm. One point, Rebecca, I would like to say, um, in case I forget, one question I often get asked is, should everybody try to reconcile? Uh, Because one part of our research has been on people who successfully reconciled and who didn't regret it. Almost every one of the hundred people who we interviewed who successfully reconciled after years or decades that was glad they did so. So I get asked, ought everybody to try to reconcile? And the answer is, of course, no. It's a highly individual decision. There are people for whom the relationship was abusive, where there was you know, extreme sibling rivalry, harsh parenting, where the family situation in childhood was so disturbing to them that even if things are better now, it's just too challenging to try to reconcile. And for people in those situations, when they do reconcile, it's almost always with help from a therapist. That said, many people in intractable estrangements do eventually reconcile, and many of them find their lives are improved as a result. So we have to remember both sides. Okay. But if we have some listeners, I mean, like you said, between a quarter and a fifth of listeners are in this situation. And if some of them are interested in reconciliation, what would your advice be? The first step that's absolutely critical is to ask yourself the question, why reconcile? In our study, we found that people often began to contemplate the reconciliation long before they did it. Thoughts about the other person come in. Sometimes the other person has changed. You know, they were in an awful marriage. Now they're in a better one. Uh, You know, they've given up a drug or, you know, alcohol habit. So the first step is to ask yourself, what will I get out of this? Why do I want to do it? Uh, And what will happen if my overtures are rebuffed or if the relationship doesn't work out? In many cases, people found some kind of a counselor to be very helpful in making that uh, decision. A second thing that almost everybody who reconciled had to do was to abandon the idea that they would be able to impose their view of the past on the other person. In successful reconciliations, people gave up the idea that they had to convince their parent how terrible their childhood was, or the parent had to convince the child how awful he or she was on multiple occasions. And very often people gave up a demand for an apology. They decided they wanted to live the relationship forward. So abandoning this idea that everybody's going to agree on what happened in the past, but was given up. Third, people not only established boundaries, they often established very clear terms. Rather than saying, you know, I want you to be nicer to me, they would say, you cannot criticize my husband or my child-rearing practices anymore. You can't complain about my partner. People often did this in the context of one last chance. After five or 10 or 15 years, the parents trying to get back in, they would say, okay, we'll try it one more time. Here's what has to happen. And that was effective in a surprising number of cases because the parent, after the estrangement, really believed the child and they didn't want it to happen again. So I would say those are three clear things. One, examine your own reasons for doing it. Get really clear on what it's going to be like. Accept the fact that your views of the past aren't going to align. Um, And then set very clear terms for the renewed relationship. Okay. Thank you very much. This aligns with a lot of things that I've heard from my dad 
So he was a hospice social oh. worker for many years. And he that pretty much resonates with what he said, which was everyone wants to reconcile with typically it's estranged family members. Um, it's one of the most common things that people feel like, like before they die, they just have an urge to kind of reconnect and smooth things over. At this point, I really wanted to talk to the mom. I wanted to hear her response to what her daughter said, hear if she had told her neighbors that Alicia had died, ask her about the memorial garden and in if her mind Alicia had effectively died or not. So um, I try calling her and I try and I try. Eventually, I made the drive out to the Rose home in Cyprus. I went at the hour I first met Mrs. Rowe, which was like around 830 in the morning, because that's when she told me she's usually out feeding the ducks. But while last time at, you know, at eight o'clock, the ducks were lining up at her front porch in anticipation. That day, the ducks were nowhere to be seen. I mean, there were a few in the river, but they weren't out craning their necks at the front step. Instead, there was a sail pending sign waving outside. There was a lockbox on the front door. And the only sign that the Rose had lived there was a package with Mrs. Rose's name on it. So I wrote a note and left. And when I checked the Houston Association of Realtors website, it showed that the home was, in fact, under contract. And the lawsuit had actually been settled just days before. So I resumed calling, trying a different number associated with the Rose a few times. And then, once again, I reached out to the lawyer. And he couldn't speak on the case, but he said he'd reach out to Mrs. Rowe just to see if she wanted to talk. A few minutes later, he called back. And he said, what she said was that she wanted to keep her family matter private, but she wanted to reconcile with her daughter. And then he said that she had asked for her lost daughter's phone number, that she wanted to get in touch. So... That's as far as I got, you know, afterwards I went back and told Alicia and she was sort of like, oh, I don't know why she's asking for my phone number because she actually had sent, you know, Facebook messages and stuff after um, Alicia was like, what's up with this article? And she said the conversations hadn't gone well and she deleted the messages and blocked her after they, they began clashing about the past. And that's the story. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, the lawsuit did end up uh, settling, shutting her up. So, so, but she ha- did she have to sell the house in order to settle? You know, I am not sure about that. And the lawyer said he couldn't talk further on it, on like what the terms were. When I did the first story, they had already listed their house and they were already talking about moving somewhere where maybe they could be the deer, you know? Um, and according to Alicia... She said that when she was talking with her mom a little bit, her mom did mention that she was moving out to sort of a more rural area close to where her grandparents lived. So um, I I don't know. I did leave this story with a lot of questions. And, you know, I just really wish I had been able to talk with Mrs. Rowe. But I also understand that it's especially talking with Dr. Pillimer, it's, it's very rare to want to talk about the subject. Mm -hmm. It's not a rare subject, but it's a rare thing for people to want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that estranged relationships 
can actually come up a lot in real estate. This is a real yeah, estate it's podcast. true. Yeah, but towards the end of life, probate I mean, I, things. I've, yeah, yeah. I remember um, my grandmother had, uh, you know, experience in her own family, um, like relatives, you know, at each other's throats over pieces of real estate, you know, and how to divide up who owned what after a death. And, you know, I think that the person dying, that's probably the last thing they wanted. So, you know, my grandmother was very, um, very careful with how she crafted the will, like completely uh, sort of traumatized from that experience that she had witnessed. You know, it's, it's sad. And, and um, I, I am sorry that Alicia, you know, was caught up Mm -hmm. in all this and, and, you know, and that you too, and, and, and even the lawyer, it's just very bizarre. It's bizarre, but I, I kind of understand how it happened. Yeah. Oh, as an aside, Mm -hmm. I am, I am uh, pro leaving wildlife the way they are. (laughs) (laughs) But I grew up in the Northwest and I was always taught like, don't feed the ducks. Don't feed the ducks. Oh yeah. (laughs) So that's like where I like when I see people feeding ducks, I'm like mortified (laughs) and like, when you wrote that story, I remember I was like, why would she do that? Like, they're going to grow a dependency and then they're just going to like get fat or like it's going to ruin the ecosystem. I like had that. That was my yeah. reaction. I totally glossed over like the part of your story where she said her daughter died. I didn't even remember yeah. that. I mean, it, like I was just like, oh, it's just a quirk, you know, quirky woman who likes that. Like that's what I was thinking. A like, clause. Like, no, I know. I'm just going back and looking at it. It's like one half of a yeah. sentence. <laughs> You know, like, like, and so, um, uh, so it's funny because I was just focusing on, on totally something else. And I would suggest, I, I always, I recommend this book to, to people all mm-hmm. the time now. Uh, I started reading it actually to understand family dynamics of someone close to me. But for people struggling, there's so many resources out there. There's one book, it's called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. How to Heal from Distant, Rejecting, or Self-Involved Parents by Lindsay C. Gibson. The point is that you're not alone mm-hmm. if you are struggling with some of these issues. And like I said, Carl Pillemer also wrote yeah. a book on this. Uh, it's called Fault Lines. It also has a, 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 oh, a lines. subtitle. Fault Lines, Fractured Families, and How to Mend Them. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you ever want to send an idea for a podcast or just say hi, you can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. I'm at R-A shoots. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. And I'm at Marissa Lux7. On our show notes, if you go to HoustonChronicle.com slash looped in, we'll have our show notes including the original story. And when we post this follow-up story, we'll also have it there as well. Thanks to our print editors, Gabby Banks and Brian Rausch. Scott Kingsley is our producer. Thanks to Farrell Gibbs and his band All the Komodos for his theme music. Until next time.